How is it possible that it's already August? We hope you are enjoying your summer. Back by popular demand is our AirPods Pro giveaway. Members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts, which you get by becoming a member. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of August, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code BONUSCONTENT, one word, at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code Bonus content. Thank you for your support. Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and the editor of the English language version of The Insider. Uh, We're joined this week by retired General Mick Ryan. Uh, he's a former guest of the show, uh, and he is, to my mind at least, one of the uh, most astute military analysts on the war in Ukraine. I always read his Twitter threads with great interest. I read his posts and his articles, and he's cited all over the Australian media. I should have mentioned he's, of course, a retired general in the Australian Army. Uh, Mick, it's great to have you back, and I couldn't think of a better guest to have on at this moment because I like to give a bit of a contextual introduction to what the episode is going to be about and the things I'd like to drill down into with you. But we're at a strange kind of moment in the war. Um, And there's a bit of a disconnect between what A, the Ukrainians think about their prospects for success as they so measure them, B, what the Russians are saying um, online and social media platforms about the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which is now about 11 or 12 weeks old, and then see what we're beginning to see in the Western media landscape and the analytic community, um, a, a sprinkling of cold water, if you like, on the optimism and the sort of uh, gung-ho nature of, of our understanding of this thing, which was Ukraine can, in, in fact, win and re- retake vast swaths of territory coming off the back of three pretty impressive counteroffenses now. Um, there's a great deal of pessimism. You'll have seen the Washington Post article, which came out last week. Uh, U.S. intelligence assesses that the Ukrainians will not reach Melitopol by the end of the summer, or if at all, they'll have difficulty reaching the Sea of Azov, thereby cutting off uh, the Russian direct line of communication. The New York Times has come out with an article showing the balance of fatalities and stroke casualties on either side, and on the Ukrainian side, they seem to be quite high. and. Everywhere you kind of look, there's a state of high dudgeon about how Ukraine is um, performing. Um, They can't do combined arms maneuver. They had that very now infamous fiasco with the 47th Brigade in Zaporizhia in the early days of the counteroffensive. And yet a strange phenomenon exists whereby Ukrainians do not seem to think that they are losing or that they are going to lose this war. Mick, what is your pricey of the current state of play on the battlefield? Do, do you think this counteroffensive is failing or has already failed? Do you do you agree with the U.S. intelligence assessment that the Ukrainians, I mean, for them, it's it's all over but the shouting? Hey, Michael, it's great to be with you. Um, 
it's hard to agree or disagree with the intelligence assessment because no one's seen it. All we've seen is leaked secondhand or thirdhand uh, reports of it by anonymous sources. So, you know, it's it's really difficult to ascertain exactly uh, what that report has said. I, I don't think the Ukrainian offensives have failed, certainly not yet. Um, you know, one of the great fallacies of this war is just because there's lots of images and lots of Twitter uh, posts uh, and lots of news conferences about it, it people kind of uh, assume that that is making people more wise about the war and seeing something and being wise about something is two separate things. So I think we need to caveat our conversation is we only see a part of this war and um, sometimes we're looking at very different parts and I think Ukrainians might be looking at a different part to US analysts who are looking at a different part to Russians. There's probably some overlap but there's probably some differences there. I also think that uh, you know, the Ukrainian challenge here is is often not appreciated by most in the media. There's a lot of focus in the South, uh, but that's just one of about six campaigns the Ukrainians are running concurrently. And I try to make this point, you know, it's not just about the South. Um, and even though they haven't had the massive uh, uh, Blitzkrieg breakthroughs that some built up this campaign to be, they have taken ground. They've also taken ground in their eastern campaign. They've largely defended against a Russian uh, mini-offensive in the northeast. Um, they've been very successful in their air defence campaign and been very adaptive in that. They've had some successes in the Black Sea and their maritime campaign. And at the same time, they're having to run a, you know, a larger national campaign to sustain the size of the military, bring in new equipment, uh, repair Equipment. So, you know, I think overall they've been very successful in that larger campaign of campaigns. Uh, in the South, clearly there have been challenges. You know, it's it's undeniable. The Ukrainians have said that. The Ukrainian president has said that. Uh, I don't think there's any disagreement in, in this at all. Um, what I think uh, will be the point of contention is how do you project from here three months into the future? Um, and and the reality is you can't. You can't predict what's going to happen. Um, there's no mathematical equation that's going to tell you how far the Ukrainians might or might not advance. There's no mathematical equation that tells you how much will the Russians or the Ukrainians might have or what surprising event might happen tomorrow. So when someone says, I will only get X kilometres from Melitopol, it's like, well, what's the judgment and the method by which you came up with that? And let's expose that to scrutiny. Um, but, yeah, it's tough going. The Ukrainians have taken a lot of casualties. But, you know, I, I'm certainly not writing off their offensive yet. There's some way to go yet. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, the, the strategy they seem to have reverted to, uh, and my colleague James Rushton and I wrote a piece about this, you know, they tried early days to do combined, arm, combined arms maneuver a la NATO, and they discovered... Uh, not wholly unexpectedly, because a lot of this had been anticipated in terms of the security assistance that had been provided to them and the training they'd received, that they can't quite do combined arms maneuver a la NATO because they haven't got air superiority, right? I mean, we're now having this debate in the, the American press. Will Would F-16s, had they been delivered in advance of the counteroffensive, have made all the difference? Uh, and what they've done, or at least as far as I can tell, is resorted to a tried and true method of you. The, the word that you use is corrosion, which I think is a very apt uh, description. Um, basically, just hitting 
Russian supply lines, ammo dumps, artillery pieces, like just slamming the Russians in the rear rather than sending loads of armor and infantry in across, as we now know, um, really forbidding minefields, uh, trenches, uh, dragon's teeth, anti-tank um, in- impediments, etc. And I mean, the strange thing about this is from the Russian side, if you look at social media, Telegram in particular, Russian mill bloggers, and in some cases, people who are kind of embedded with Russian forces, constantly complain. Lack of counter battery. Uh, we had that famous leak by General Popov. Uh, I'm sorry, it was a Major Popov, I think, uh, which wasn't intended for public consumption, but nonetheless was disseminated, in which he said that the situation is dire. Russian troops are not being rotated out. Morale is low, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, this sort of reminds me, and I know this analogy isn't exquisitely apt, but it reminds me of the lead up to the Kherson withdrawal in November, where if you just monitored what the Russians were saying, it didn't, you didn't see much dynamism on the maps, right? Arrows weren't changing places every day or, or a week even, but the Russians were complaining about exactly the same thing. And lo and behold, then they had their goodwill gesture of withdrawing, you know, across the Dnipro. I mean, do you, I know I, it's, it's very hard and I, I try not to ask my guests to make predictions, but do you see the potential for Ukrainian breakthrough either in the near or mid or I guess even long-term future? I mean, if this thing is going to run into next year and then beyond, the idea that they have only until the summer to have a major victory seems to me kind of misguided. It's a, sort of a category error, right? They will continue fighting so long as they have the capability to do so. Yeah, you don't have to uh, spend much time with Ukrainians to understand whether the US supports them or not. They're going to continue fighting Russia. Um, And I think, you know, the heart of the problem here is no one in the West understands what it's like to be under an existential threat. Um, No one understands what it's like to have your cities bombed, your your people raped, tortured, murdered, your cities destroyed. Um, and, you know, that gives you a different mindset uh, compared to what, you know, we we live in relative luxury in the West. You know, we've got to be honest about this. Um, so, you know, I think we, we're looking at this with different mindsets. Um, on combined arms, uh, I think we need to be honest that no country, with the exception of the United States, can do combined arms how people imagine Ukraine might. Uh, the reality is that combined arms doctrine that we developed in the Second World War and beyond was predicated uh, on that situation that existed in 1945, which was the German air Luftwaffe was destroyed and you didn't have to worry about an air threat. Uh, no NATO country by itself could do that. Let's be very clear about that. The US could, my country couldn't, Canada couldn't, Germany couldn't, Britain couldn't. So, you know, the expectations we placed on Ukraine saying, well, you should be able to do it with 40-year-old 40 fighter jets um, and with brigades that you formed last week is unrealistic. I think that, you know, there's been a significant intellectual failure here on the part of NATO uh, when it comes to what is combined arms doctrine under modern conditions, uh, what is combined arms breaching uh, operations under modern conditions, because most of the doctrine, including minefield breaching, was developed half a century ago. But in that period, we've seen really significant technological advances, firstly, in the meshing of what I call this mesh civil military sensor framework, where battlefield transparency has been significantly enhanced. And then the application of digitised battle command, which has linked that situational awareness to fires 
at a speed that's unprecedented in history. Uh, and that has made combined arms operations very, very difficult indeed, not just the air control. It's, I think those, those technological advances have been difficult. Um, and then, I, you know, if you use that logic and then you go back to the Washington Post article which says, well, we told them they should concentrate everything in one place and bash through. It's like, well, how could you do that under these circumstances? That just wouldn't have been possible. The, the Russians would have picked it up very quickly and destroyed them because they had air superiority and the Ukrainians were concentrated. So I think, you know, we need to have a dose of reality about what combined arms warfare needs to be under modern conditions, and it's not the combined arms warfare that most people in the commentariat are, are imagining. And once again, I think this is a significant intellectual failure on our part to reimagine what it looks like uh, given 18 months of experience in Ukraine. Yeah. And I mean, you you see, we have this constant debate, particularly in the United States, about certain pieces of kit that haven't been provided. And why haven't we provided them already? And if we provide them now, will they make a difference? And now, of course, it's become an inventory problem. Have we got enough of them, right? So attack them, for instance. I mean, I've read innumerable articles and pieces of analysis, both pro and anti-attackums for Ukraine. On the pro side, they'll say, well, they can reach a distance that, uh, you know, Gimlers and other pieces of artillery that the Ukrainians have got cannot reach. Um, also, at a very broad level, more is always more, right? So even if we're giving them storm shadows uh, and their French and, and perhaps even now German variants, um, they could still always benefit from having you know, a supersonic piece of artillery missile rockets that can hit deep inside enemy lines, basically targeting any area of occupied Ukraine. Um, in the anti-column there as well, you know, Lockheed is sort of winding down on their production of these things. We haven't got enough domestic stockpiles uh, and we don't want to take away from our foreign allies stockpiles, particularly South Korea, in the unlikely event that the North decides to go to war and, you know, the United States has to help. And then we don't even touch the, the issue of Taiwan and China and all that, which I'd like to get into a little bit later in the conversation, because I know you've written a book on this. But what is your view about the failure or the reluctance of the United States and its partners to provide some of these bits of ammunition slash weapons platforms to Ukraine? I mean, I remember very you put it quite simply and starkly, and I think eloquently last time we had you on the show, which was just give Ukraine everything you can and they'll figure out a way to use it. Um, of course, barring things like WMD, which is the Czech president's position. Do you still maintain that that should have been our program? And and I mean, could they benefit? Would they benefit from attackums and I don't know, come up with some other wish list items that they haven't been provided? Yeah, I think. If we had done that earlier on in the war, we might be in a different situation. Um, you know, I think way too too many people wring their hands about how much can the Ukrainians absorb. Um, and the Ukrainians have told us from the beginning, we'll absorb what we need to absorb because when you're under an existential threat, it allows you to do things differently. And I think, unfortunately, many of the uh, countries who are providing stuff are kind of mirror imaging their own bureaucratic processes on the Ukrainians. Like, well, if we couldn't absorb F-16s in, you know, 10 weeks, there's no way the Ukrainians could. It's like, yeah, but no one's trying to kill you and your family tonight. You know, it, it kind of gives you a different motivation. So I think there's, you know, we've failed to appreciate how the Ukrainians think and operate in some some respects. 
Um, you know, I think the longer, the more long-range strike they can have, the better. I think that, um, you know, the Ukrainians have decided they kind of have to take the war to the Russians and you need long-range strike to do this. Uh, the Ukrainian, the Russians are targeting every bit of Ukrainian society and the Ukrainians have gone, well, why shouldn't we target military targets and political targets in, in Russia proper? Uh, I think that's that's where this is going to even more now if uh, they can't break through in the south. So, you know, the, the irony of not providing these long-range things is it's driving the Ukrainians to develop their own to do more attacks within Russia uh, rather than using ATACMs against Crimea, I think is the irony of not providing them these these weapons. But that said, you know, at the end of the day, there's no silver bullet. Uh, and we know from history is it's how you wield these different tools uh, with tr well-trained people, well-led people, uh, good planning, uh, the good application of intelligence that uh, that wins wars. And uh, if you go back to the US after the Vietnam War, they might have had the big five equipment items, but it was really a training education uh, revolution uh, that turned the US Army into the beast that destroyed Iraq in 1991. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, it, it seems to be the case. And uh, I mean, perhaps or actually, I, I would insist you probably know more about this than, than anybody. Whenever there is a, a conflict, particularly a conflict that the United States, let's say, is not directly involved in, such as this, this is an indirect war for the US. We are a massive provider of security assistance, but it's somebody else at the end of the day on the ground fighting it. The Pentagon bean counters always come up with very elaborate and creative excuses as to why, no, we can't do this, or we shouldn't do this, or this isn't going to work, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I remember the argument about the Abrams tank, which is, well, you know, it runs on jet fuel. Yeah, but it actually also can run on diesel. So that's kind of a, a you know, a straw man argument. Uh, I heard the same thing about Patriot missile systems. Um, well, these are kind of antiquated and they're not they're not very good. Uh, and they're not going to intercept things. Well, I mean, a lot of people in Kyiv are alive as we speak because of the Patriot batteries that have been placed in the capital. I mean, they've taken down everything from the Russian invincible Kinjal cruise missile to, I mean, I don't think they're even targeting drones, much heavier duty of kit than that, S-300 missiles, etc. Um, so it seems like there's always this kind of bureaucratic, slow-rolling, excuse-making behemoth, particularly in a country the size of the United States. And then lo and behold, you provide something and it works like all hell. I mean, for instance, cluster munitions. Obviously, there was a controversy about this from a human rights point of view, because these things are banned in multiple countries. Um, parts of the coalition that are pro-Ukraine were very critical of the Biden administration's decision to provide depictums to Ukraine. But I've just seen today any number of bits of analysis showing these things are wreaking havoc on Russian infantry. I mean, they are shredding them, literally shredding them, uh, and also keeping them from going on counter attacks uh, in the South against the Ukrainian encroachments. I mean, what your, your sense of how government, particularly the military industrial complex in NATO countries works, is it really that we're sort of our own worst enemy in this regard? It, not that we're so clever and wise that we can anticipate a lack of need for countries that, as you say, are facing these existential struggles? Or do we just like coming up with excuses to say no to things? I'm sure there's a little bit of that, uh, but it, it's always more complicated, unfortunately. I think one of the problems is that uh, most Western governments are still conditioned to the 
uh, pace of decision making that we were used to post 9-11. You know, the, the 20 years of war post that were actually pretty slow moving wars, uh, low casualties, very low consumption of munitions and equipment, uh, and didn't require lots and uh, lots of very very quick um, decision making. That that era is gone. That doesn't exist anymore. Uh, we are not in that era in Europe, and we're certainly not in that era in the Western Pacific, uh, with the pace of change happening out here. I don't think any Western polity has actually evolved into that new rapid, uh, higher risk. Uh, taking decision-making era. So I think that's certainly a contributing factor. A second one is that no military organisation thinks it has more than it needs. It just It's just not how military organisations think. We always think we're being underdone, uh, we have less than we need, that our budget was less than we wanted. So when someone says, well, I need you to give up a quarter of this, of something you already think you don't have enough of, uh, that will cause challenges with service chiefs who have certain contingency plans and readiness uh, elements to uh, to meet and who their government, whether it's there or here, says, well, no, you still got to meet those. <laughs> so, so, so that's a challenge as well. And then I think the third one, and this has been written about a bit, is, you know, the post-Cold War industrial uh, consolidations of the number of defence industry and consolidation of production in a quantitative sense as well as drawdown in stock holdings and force sizes, is contributed as well. So I think all these things go into it. But I think the fourth thing is I still don't know we've invested enough in understanding how the Ukrainians think and fight. Um, I still think was probably a little bit too much mirror imaging. As If you only fought like us, you'd be more successful, which is the height of arrogance and lack of humility on our part. So I think all these things go go together, but I think the Ukrainians have demonstrated a huge learning and absorption capacity for new capabilities, and if in doubt, uh, give it to them. I reckon. Yeah, now you you alluded to the sort of deep strike capacity that Ukraine has uh, been developing. I mean, we've seen their uh, so called sea baby naval drones, which I mean took out a, a blasted a huge hole through a, a Russian tanker. Um, I think also hit the Kerch Bridge. We've seen drone attacks, which I remember just several months ago when a drone singed one of the domes of the Kremlin. Everyone was sort of saying, well, there's no way the Ukrainians can have done this. Look at how many hundreds of kilometers. And lo and behold, U.S. intelligence assessed it. It was it was the Ukrainians. Now drone attacks over Moscow are a near daily occurrence. And we've seen sort of how exponentially um accelerated the Ukrainian military industrial complex of its own has been. Um, we don't know even what kind of homegrown kits they're they're developing next in terms of drones and all kinds of aerial capability. And again, this is sort of uh, born of the necessity of defending their, their country. Tell me a little bit about your perspective on how Ukraine is able to conduct these operations inside Russian territory. I mean, I've had People in Ukrainian military intelligence say to me quite candidly that they've recruited so-called partisans, Russian actors inside Russian Federation territory, who are anti-Putin, anti-Kremlin and anti-war, who are launching these things from Russian Federation territory at Russian targets. Um, General Budanov, the head of GUR, Ukrainian military intelligence, I've interviewed him. Uh, he is every inch the special forces operator and if I may say, just doesn't give a damn about what anyone thinks about how he's conducting his sort of not so clandestine warfare. This war has come home to Russia in a major key. 
And again, I don't see even if this counteroffensive fails, I don't see that coming to a halt anytime soon. If anything, I think it's going to escalate and expand. How do you think that's going to change the dynamic of, for instance, how Russia will fight in Ukrainian territory, much less keep a lid on its own population saying enough is enough? We don't want to have, you know, our residential buildings attacked. Well, I think, you know, the Russians have done everything terrible to a country that it's possible to do in Ukraine. Um, They can't do anything else to the Ukrainians at this point in the war. I mean, they have systemic torture centres. They're deporting uh, Ukrainian citizens. They are torturing and maiming uh, POWs. You know, they're destroying whole cities. They've mined 15% of Ukraine. So the Ukrainians have gone, well, there's, what, what are they going to do to us next if we fly a drone to, to Moscow? And if, you know, others won't give us the means to, we have to show the Russians that there's a price for this war, that there's a political cost, not just a battlefield one, but there is a political cost because ultimately wars are decided at the political level, even if four-year soldiers are dead. The politicians have to make a call. Um, So, you know, I think the Ukrainians have been quite adaptive and innovative in this war. They've identified some key Russian vulnerabilities. And if they haven't had the weapon systems to... Uh, attack them, whether it's uh, sufficient artillery on the battlefield, they come up with solutions to fill that gap. For them, that's been army of drones. In the political sense, it's been uh, developing or uh, retasking older systems like the S-300 or or longer-range drones for uh, deep operational or even strategic strike missions in in the air and, and in the maritime domains. So, you know, the the Ukrainians seem, well, this war actually is expanding, whether we'd like it or not, just because uh, we've been limited on what we can do at the tactical level with the weapons we have. If we want to win, we've got to take this war into the political level, and that means attacking Russia, whether it's drones or whether it's the Belgorod incursions, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, spreading a rumour that we helped Prigozhin with his march on Moscow, uh, which I'm sure Budinov had a lot of fun with. Um you know, I think this war is is expanding in scope purely because of um, some of the shortfalls in, in weapon systems Ukraine Ukrainians have been provided. And what's also interesting about this is, and to give the United States a bit of credit, I know I've been a little bit critical of my own government, they're thinking in terms of uh, a fear of Russian escalation or retaliation has changed markedly since February 24th of last year. So, you know, for instance, World War III was something that was uttered by U.S. senior ranking U.S. officials as a contingency we wanted to forestall and avoid. Uh, Now you don't really hear that that much. Um, In fact, you've heard some officials such as Victoria Nuland say the risk of Putin launching even a tactical nuclear weapon has diminished greatly, not only thanks to our own intervention, but also the Chinese, the Indians, his other remaining allies, whatever. Um, now, for instance, you, you're not seeing things, red lines that the United States has imposed on Ukrainian security assistance seem to have, I mean, they've turned either purple or just evaporated. So, for instance, harm anti-radiation missile batteries have wound up inside Russian Federation territory. They weren't supposed to be used in Russia, but there they go. Uh, you mentioned the incursions into Belgorod. Uh, we've seen Ukrainian-backed Russian proxies using U.S.-supplied armor to conduct some of these incursions. These proxies are not very nice, um, ideologically amenable, certainly not to um, U.S. congressional oversight committees. 
And yet there has been no penalty for this from the American side. So in other words, we said, don't do it. The Ukrainians did it. And we kind of looked the other way. Um, I would see this as progress. <laughs> a lot of people might actually find it you know, too high of a price. But yet, as you said, the Russians have done everything they can to Ukraine. And yet the one threat they still have that they haven't material made good on rather is what they can do to NATO or what they can do to the broader West. And there's been so far nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. That is, they're still spying, they're still conducting influence operations, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems like in any place outside of Ukraine that Russia is kind of plying its grim trade is, is now Africa, more so than Europe and and you know NATO EU domain. I mean, what do you what do you make of this lack of response from the Russian side? Because the Ukrainians have done everything they can to provoke Putin. Um, I think just on the escalation fears in the United States government. I mean, you should never tell your enemy what you're afraid of. I mean, it's it's pretty simple rule when it comes to any kind of fight, right? Um, you know, Putin found out that Angela Merkel didn't like dogs, so he brought a dog into the, a meeting with her. He is the master of messing with people's minds. So I think very early on, there was too much telegraphing to the Russians of what we were scared of. And what did they do? They played on it. Uh, you know, they played on it beautifully. I think we've learned that, you know, maybe that's not a very clever thing to do. Um, we shouldn't have had to learn that, but we did. Um, that said, you've always got to have some respect for an opponent uh, that has nuclear weapons. I mean, you cannot 100% discount their use. Uh, they're always part of the calculus. And I think it would be reasonable to say that both sides, uh, nuclear deterrent has worked in this war. Um, Russia has not expended the war beyond Ukraine's borders because of the, I think, because of the US extended deterrence for NATO. Uh, and NATO doesn't have boots on the ground or no-fly zones over Ukraine, probably partially because of the Russian nuclear deterrent. But, you know, wars tend towards escalation. We've seen a lot happen in the last six months we just didn't expect to see in the first 12 months with strikes in Moscow and uh, all these kind of things, including Crimea. Um, I, I think that's going to continue to happen regardless of, of how much support is provided to Ukraine. They, they are in this to the end. They, they can't tow their country out into the middle of the South Pacific to get away from Russia. They're stuck with them. And one way or another, they feel they're going to have to resolve this. Um, and uh, my view is we have a humanitarian imperative to help them resolve it more quickly with a Ukrainian victory. I'd also just say, um, you know, what is the US strategy for Ukraine? I mean, it's not, not my, it's not clear. What is the end game for the US? Is it for Ukraine to survive? Is it for Russia to get a good flogging? I think the US needs to be pretty clear about this because that drives alliance support. It drives levels of assistance, um, and it will drive what the security architecture of Europe looks like uh, once this war is over one way or the other. Right. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, if Russia walks away with a slightly less than 20% of Ukrainian territory, I can easily see how Putin spins that as a victory. It may not be the kind of victory he, he set out to achieve, but it's still a victory. It's still more terrain than, than he had at the outset. Um, and also, you know, there's a domestic political calculation here, which is the Biden administration has expended or authorized the expenditure of tens of billions of dollars in security assistance to Ukraine um, and has said, you know, no decision about Ukraine without Ukraine. But there is, as you say, this kind of disconnect or ambiguity between what Ukrainian victory looks like versus how the United States has articulated it. So we want to help Ukraine achieve 
as much uh, or recapture as much territory on the battlefield to put them in the strongest possible position for peace negotiations. Well, A, what if Russia doesn't want to negotiate peace or it wants to have some kind of mushy ceasefire, which is really kind of a breathing space for them to launch further military action against Ukraine? And B, if Ukraine doesn't want peace, well, then both sides are going to keep fighting. And does the United States escalate or does it de-escalate? And, you know, one of the, the big issues coming up here, because we have a presidential election next year, is, you know, you have critics from the, the mostly the far right, but also the far left in the United States who think we've done far too much for Ukraine. American popular support for giving more arms and more money has steadily diminished. Um, would the Biden administration be able to declare this a foreign policy accomplishment that it turns into this kind of as I say, you know, stalemate or frozen conflict. I mean, yes, Kyiv does not fall. Ukraine maintains some measure of sovereignty, but still absent about 20% of its territory. Um, I mean, what, what, what would you, if you were in a kind of liaison or advisory capacity to not just the White House, but the Pentagon, be advocating that the U.S. in particular, obviously in, in conjunction with all of its allies, be doing that it is not doing for Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, the uh, distance between Russian and Ukrainian positions on peace at the moment, there's just a vast chasm between them. There's no reconciling them without some significant change uh, in the battlefield situation and territorial control. Um, So, you know, peace negotiations at the moment, whilst dialogue's always good, there are no peace negotiations. You know, the best peace negotiations are the ones where your adversary is on their knees in front of you. you know, they're, they're the one, they're the times when you want to do peace negotiations. I think, I think that the U.S. electorate probably needs to understand that if there is a freezing uh, and you, Russia keeps that twenty percent, it, it will never give it back. Uh, we should be clear about it. it will never give it back. And secondly, uh, the narrative from Russia will be not that it's beaten Ukraine, but that it's beaten the United States. And I think too many people kind of distance the United States from this war. Said, "Oh well, even if the worst happened, Ukraine loses. You know, um, that it's not a big loss for us." It's like, no. Uh, if Ukraine loses, the narrative from China and Russia will be that the United States has lost, and there will be a massive price to pay for the United States. So, you know, the US actually can't afford to walk away from this conflict because it will have a significant geopolitical impact. It will have a significant impact on the United States with its allies who will all go, so at what point do you write us off and walk away, particularly when you don't have boots on the ground, when you did in Iraq and Afghanistan, which were arguably less strategically important than Ukraine. So, you know, I understand that people want to kind of get this off the table in time for the presidential election next year. Uh, In the real world, that's not how it works. Uh, and somehow American politicians are going to have to reconcile a, a presidential election and supporting a war at the same time. It's You can't choose one or the other. You've got to do both well. Well, let me. this is a perfect segue into your neck of the woods, which is Asia Pacific. I mean, you've written a book about Taiwan, and I think the last time you, I had you on the show, you said that a Chinese attempt to retake Taiwan is not a question of uh, if but when. Right. This is your assessment. As of today, I mean, you've you've you kind of already answered my question, but I'll let you expand on it. What do you think the mood is in Beijing if the U.S. says, right, okay, summer counteroffensive, bit of a damn squib. Therefore, 
time to force the Ukrainians into some kind of peace negotiation or settlement, even if it's not a final settlement, it's at least a temporary one. And let's kind of begin to sweep Ukraine under the carpet. Um, I would imagine doesn't go down very well in Taiwan, but goes down quite well in China. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every loss for the US is a gain for China in their view. I mean, they're, they're playing a game that's, there's a military buildup. At the end of the day, this is a political battle by President Xi. Uh, and the core of his argument, you know, is the old, the East is rising, the West is declining. And uh, this will just be part of the broader narrative about, you know, China's rise is inevitable and you should side with us. He's doing it across the global south. He's trying to do it across East and Southeast Asia and the South Pacific. Uh, so, you know, I, I think what's happening in Ukraine is connected more broadly uh, across the globe. And those who want to separate it and just say we should only focus on China really overlook the profound impact that um, a loss in Ukraine or a freezing the conflict in Ukraine would have on US's global legitimacy. It's it's very interesting you say this too. There was a recent piece in the New York Times, um, which actually built on an investigation that I was partly responsible for at New Lines about an American tech, uh, I guess he's a multimillionaire, he could be a billionaire, Roy Singham, who has been putting a lot of dark money into pro-Chinese influence operations in the United States. Uh, most of them on the very far left of the spectrum. But interestingly enough, a lot of these organizations or cutouts um, also peddle the essentially capitulationist line on Ukraine. Why is the U.S. fighting a proxy war? You know, we should stop arming. So the two are inextricably linked with each other. And if you believe in the, the so-called multipolar world, where, you know, Washington is no longer the, the the center of gravity, but Beijing and Moscow, competitive interests again, um, then it's all of a piece, isn't it? I mean, as goes Ukraine, so goes Taiwan, so goes a host of other things. I mean, would you also agree as a kind of side question to the last one I asked you, I, I, Gary Kasparov had a piece, a very long piece in the Kiev Post last week in which he essentially makes the argument that, look, our weak need response to Russia's first invasion in 2014, the annexation of Crimea, and then the launching of this dirty war in Donbass, emboldened Putin, gave him the confidence to believe that if he decided to just level Kiev, it would be a lot of shrugging of shoulders and maybe some mild, easily weathered sanctions by the West. But in fact, he was surprised by Western resolve and coherence on this issue. Um, but if that resolve and that coherence starts to disintegrate, well, it, it kind of proves his thesis correct, which is the West cannot put up a fight, at least not to the extent that Russia is willing to to fight it. Yeah, I think he's got a point. I mean, if you have a look at the wars that Putin's waged over 20 years, sec Second Chechnya, Georgia, um, 2014, Ukraine, Crimea and Donbass, uh, which were quite separate kind of operations, um, and Syria, in each of these circumstances, Putin's got his way, largely. Uh, the West largely hasn't stood in his way. So we shouldn't be surprised that he assumed the same would happen with this operation. He just thought that Western Europeans were weak and unwilling to sacrifice on the part of Ukraine. Uh, he was proved wrong largely, but not totally. I mean, that's why we're having this debate now, right? Um, and that's why he thinks, well, maybe not in the short term, but in the long term, uh, they're going to get sick of this. Now, 
there's evidence to support that from those previous conflicts. But, hey, we stuck at it in Iraq and Afghanistan for way longer uh, for objectives that were probably not as important in, in some respects and with more of our people dying and, and being horribly maimed and spending a lot more money and giving them equipment like F- F-16s and M1s. So, you know, I think uh, we need to look at the 20 years leading up to this about how why Putin thought like he did and then look at what's happened the last 18 months. Think, do we think that's tra- changed his calculus at all? Well, Mick, uh, it's been a pleasure as always, and I know you've got a new book out or coming out uh, imminently about the the war in Ukraine. If you want to tell us a little bit about it and when we can expect to be able to purchase it. Yeah, so the manuscript's done. Uh, it's gone to the publisher. Uh, it, it is focusing on strategy and, and adaptation from the Ukrainians and Russians throughout this war. And they're two really interesting asymmetries between these two countries. So I explore them over a few chapters and hopefully that'll be out uh, early next year. And it looks at basically from the start of the war all the way through to the commencement of this uh, current offensive. Yeah, and you, you pose a very interesting uh, question at the start of the counteroffensive, which is the army that can adapt quickest and most effectively is the one that's going to win this particular campaign or this set of campaigns, as you pointed out at the outset. As of today, do you rate the Ukrainian ability for adaptation higher than you rate the Russians? Because it is true the Russians have learned from some of their mistakes and they have taken proper precautions, particularly their their dug-inness, if that's a word, in the South. But again, the Ukrainians figured out what they couldn't do very early on and are now resorting to what they do quite well. And we've begun to see a sort of steady chipping away um, along these lines of contact that had remained static for several weeks. I mean, you're, 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 if you're an odds maker, a bet maker, I mean, do you say that the, the fight is still very much with Kiev or is it begun to turn toward Moscow? No, it's certainly with Kiev. Um, there's no doubt about that. I mean, both, both sides have adapted throughout this war. Um, both sides have had challenges with learning during the war at, at different times and in different formations. But I think the Ukrainians have been better at it at the tactical and operational and strategic levels. Um, but it also means we need to be very prudent in watching Russia because they have learned and we need to make sure they don't catch up in their capacity to learn and adapt. Oh, well said. Uh, well, Mick, again, it's a, it's been an honour and a privilege as always to have you on the show. And um we look forward to your book. Do you have a title that you can tease so that people know what to search for? Is that uh, still in the air? Not, not yet. We're still yet. We're, okay. we're still working on titles. You know what that's not like. <laughs> yeah, believe me, I do. I, I, I'm arguing with my publisher about the current title of my book, but that's that's another story for another episode. Uh, well, look, it's a perfect opportunity to bring you back on when the book comes out, and we can we can have a chat about it. Thanks, Michael. It was great yeah. to talk to you today. Absolutely. Uh, You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and the editor of the English language version of The Insider. My guest this week is retired General Mick Ryan, and we will see you again soon. Take care.